Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have left for me in the comment section of my Critical Q&A videos, or even better, have emailed to me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. If you have questions for me, that would be the place to send them. All right, so um, I wanted to encourage everybody to check out the podcast I did with Barry Purcell. He is an Irish writer, blogger that I had a really far-reaching and uh, interesting conversation with for my podcast this week, and I hope you guys will check that out. And we talked uh, a little bit about, well, all about the Masterson trial this week on Friday night in the live show, if you want to check that out on replay. Had a few thoughts and ideas about that and about how we most effectively engage in activism against cults, not just Scientology, all of them, and there are plenty, religious and non-religious. And, uh, you know, really in the bigger picture, Scientology is rather small compared to other groups that have far more uh, far-reaching consequences or or, uh, crimes even, and certainly a lot more money in the bank, not to devalue the harm that Scientology does, but just to point out it's a big topic. There's a lot there. And all of us are trying our best to um, do what we can to expose it. Uh, share the information about that and warn people off of them. That's the whole point. So anyway, I hope you guys will check out that show that we did on Friday. I was joined by my beautiful wife, Melissa, right here uh, for that. And we had a good time with, uh, with some callers. All right. So that all being said, let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions this week. Oscar Q. Zilch. Suppose that the Church of Scientology ceased to exist. What do you think should be done with all the PC folders and other files of the church? The church's internal files contain deeply personal information as well as embarrassing and unreliable speculation. Unlike patient files or police reports, we don't really have laws or bureaucracies to deal with the expensive storage and access to religious records from a corporation that has lost all of its customers, employees, and assets. This is a great question um, because it is an interesting and important point is what would or what should be done with all of those files. And just to comment on this for a minute, Scientology doesn't just have one set of files on their parishioners or its customers or its victims, however, whatever word you want to use for that. Scientology keeps a number of records and files on people. There are the pre-clear folders, which are the most intimate personal knowledge about a person, but those are also matched by the ethics files. So so you have PC folders, and they're called PC folders even if somebody is OT. PC stands for pre-clear. But the term is just anybody who's getting auditing or referring to a person as someone who has gotten auditing. And so you have a bunch of files, and usually these number up pretty quick. They get thick. All of the worksheets and information from people's auditing goes into these folders. And for example, when I left Scientology, I had over 50. I think I had something like 60 or 70 of these things. Other people can get hundreds of them, depending on how much auditing you get and how many hours you spend in that auditing will determine how thick those folders get and how quickly you get more and more and more of them. Uh, same kind of with the ethics files. That is a, as a sort of a, a, a place for all the reports that get written on you, whether you've seen them or not. There are a lot of reports that get written in Scientology that you never even see or know about. People reporting on you, you reporting on other people, etc. cetera. Uh, if you've been watching the Danny Masterson trial, you know that there are things called things that shouldn't be reports, 
which are different from knowledge reports. And there are um, something like 20 different kinds of reports, damage reports, alter is reports, uh, knowledge reports, crime reports, high crime reports. There's a whole issue on reports. Uh, on It's called staff member reports. And there's just all these different things you can write somebody else up for. Uh, and so the knowledge report, of course, is the most common one. I have knowledge of this and I'm passing it on to the ethics section so that they can take action. Um, so this is the reporting system of Scientology and it's quite bureaucratic and quite... Um, well, it's got that German, that ruthless German efficiency, you know, we could say, uh, because that's kind of what it's modeled after. And uh, that's kind of what supports uh, Scientology's whole spy system, its internal reporting system. So you have files and some people, everybody in Scientology has an ethics file. How thick it is and how many of them you have depends basically on how long you've been around in Scientology and how involved you've been with it. Staff members will accumulate thick ethics files quickly because staff members tend to have a lot more reports written on them than public Scientologists. And of course, Sea Org members are going to have more reports written on them than your average staff member. It's kind of how it tends to work out. Because as you're going up the levels of dedication and responsibility to Scientology, you are going up the levels of fanaticism about writing those reports on each other. So, um, so that's a thing. You also have student files where that's a, you know, when you do write-ups or you do um, practical exercises or essays or anything as a student in a course room in Scientology, that all goes into your student file. And again, depending on how many classes you do, how many essays you write, that kind of thing, you could end up having multiple student files. I'm trying to think. There's also a central files, uh, which is your sort of uh, where all the receipts and invoices that you have for every service you've ever done, every book you've ever purchased, copies of all that stuff goes into your central file. That's supposed to be the organizational representation of your activity with the church. And so you can go to a person's central file and you can see all the letters that have been written to the person, responses back from the person, emails as well go in there and they get printed out and they go in that file. And again, invoices for all the services and books and materials you've ever purchased. So you kind of have this running record of a person's involvement with Scientology. And with the letters in there, the emails, you have some idea of the character or flavor of who this person is and their communications with the organization. So um, let's see, there's treasury files, but those aren't really kept on individual parishioners. I think those are basically the files. Maybe I'm forgetting uh, something important, but I think those are the main ones. Certainly your pre-clear folder is going to be the most important one. And that's, that, that's the one where you're going to have the worksheets from all the confessionals that you've received and stuff like that. Reports also get written on these confessionals, not all of them, but some of them, uh, that what are, what, we don't have to get into all the nuances of that right now, but reports from those do go into your ethics file as well. So the ethics file and the preclear folder tend to be the one that has the most intimate, personally damning information in them. Now, having described all that for everybody, what's my idea here in terms of what should be done if Scientology closed tomorrow or it all folded up? I think they should all be shredded is really my first answer, and I think that's actually the correct answer. I do believe all those files should just be 
waste bin. There's nothing useful in them as far as uh, information other people need to have on you. If you're a preclear or you're a Scientologist, that you, you don't want anybody else having access to that information. It's, it's again, deeply uh, personal. And I wouldn't, and the reason I would say, why don't we just do a big shred party is because there in the pre-clear folder is not just the running records of your sessions, but there's an awful lot of write-ups uh, evaluating the person. What's wrong with them? What do they need? What are they programmed for as their next actions? And the programming is based on case notes, based on tests the person has taken and um, interviews that were done on the person. And so the case supervisors and the auditors write an awful lot of personal evaluation in there. Uh, you know, he's very introverted. He's introverted all the time, ridiculously introverted. I mean, they'll make personal remarks to about the person that are not intended for the person to ever see. Preclear folders are not something of, that the preclear is ever going to have access to. And I don't know that, you know, there would be any real reason that a person would need to have access to that information as opposed to just getting rid of it. It might be curious, it might be interesting for some people, but other people might be a little like intimidated and uh, introverted. And um, I'm not going to go so far as to say traumatized, but I will say that it could be um, introverting. It could be like, you know, they thought this, they think this, maybe this is true, you know, and all this, you could kind of get yourself spinning a little bit reading your own preclear folder. It might be interesting from a historical perspective. I know I'd be interested in seeing all of my pre-clear folders. Might clarify an awful lot of memories for me, and rem- and I might remember all kinds of stuff that I'm forgetting right now about my experience with Scientology. You know, success stories and sessions and actions I received that I've just completely forgotten about. Might be kind of interesting. So in that sense, I would say they should that all those files should be given back to the people. If we're not going to shred them all, if if there's some protest or problem with that or people want them good then give them their files and be done with it and because really i think they are more their property than the than the churches or anybody else's they certainly shouldn't just be warehoused in some government facility or owned by some private corporation to do with what they will that 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 would absolutely not be a good idea now Having said all that, it occurs to me right now that perhaps there might be evidence of crimes in these folders, and maybe that might be of interest. But, you know, we do have the of, uh, Fourth Amendment. We do have rights and, and protections uh, at self-incrimination, that kind of thing. So I don't think we'd want to have a bunch of lawyers or, you know, legal eagles diving through these folders looking for criminal activity or corroboration of criminal activity, that could get really sticky. And as my understanding of the law, that could get really bad uh, in terms of rights and violation of, of constitutional rights. So I don't think we would really want that. I think it's kind of drop it, move on, right, kind of thing. Um, but, you know, maybe case by case, right? If you have somebody who's accused of very serious crimes, you know, the information in those files could be useful in terms of corroborating it. But odds are it's not going to mainly, It's odds are a lot of that's not going to be uh, admissible in court. It's somebody else's write-up of what somebody was telling them 
with no expectation that they were ever going to have this turned into law enforcement. And there is the whole religious confessional protection thing. So, you know, so the more I think about that, the more I think that's probably not really much of an option or avenue that we should be thinking about or looking at. Uh, so yeah, so I, I really, my first answer is shred them all. And if people don't want that done, fine, give the files back to all of the individual individuals, uh, you know, about which those files are on and, and let them do whatever they want to with them. And that would be, th- those are really the only two things I could think of that would be at all constructive. I, re- I really don't know what else anybody could do with them. But of course, if you have ideas about this, let me know in the comments. I'd be interested to see what I might be missing on this one. Michael Yoder. I was wondering if it would be possible for a Thetan to invade or try to invade the physical body of another Thetan. Of course, it's all silliness and the livingness of beingness, but would Scientologists think of that as possession if they believe in that at all? No, Michael, you're nailing it. That's exactly what uh, possession is interpreted as. If we, if Scientologists had to acknowledge that that there would be the phenomena of demonic possession, like the exorcist, you know, Linda Blair's head spinning around. I don't know about that part, but, you know, the puking and the speaking and tongues and all the other stuff that go on um, and all the contortions and crazy stuff that happen with, uh, you know, exorcisms and with people who are possessed – Scientologists would absolutely be able to explain that away by saying either the person is dramatizing heavily their, you know, from an OT perspective, they might talk about body thetans and how the person is really, really getting like confused with their body thetans. From a non-OT perspective, they would think, like like I would have thought as a Scientologist, that yeah, absolutely another thetan could have come along and they could be battling it out for possession of the body. Uh, Hubbard talks about how Thetans would do this and they would they would snap each other with electrical force and you could kill a body doing that too. Uh, Thetans would, uh, what was that, the word that they would use? It's in History of Man. I think it was snapping. They would, you know, sort of, you know, give an electrical charge at the other Thetan to kind of uh, snap him out or hurt him or something. And of course, there this could, this could kill a body. Um but if it didn't kill the body, maybe it would scare the Thetan away, and then you know you get possession of it. So Th- Hubbard did talk about in like in like one or two places that I remember uh, the idea that Thetans could duke it out over a body. But really, the whole thing was rather silly because bodies are a dime a dozen. There's no reason to be fighting over an individual body. It would just be you know some mal Thetan trying to create trouble, uh, you know, or some predatory Thetan trying to just uh, horn in on on uh, some body that really doesn't belong to him. And it would be difficult to do because the person who is running that body is really tuned to that body. He's on the right wavelength, so to speak, right? Because he's grown the body. And so they could duke it out while the baby is still a baby, even while the baby is still in uh, utero. There, there, You could have Thetans fighting for a body. Um, maybe duking it out, maybe negotiating, maybe talking, you know, however they're going to do it. Uh, or, you know, with a grown person who's, you know, trying to be possessed by some other Thetan, that possessing Thetan is going to have a little bit of a hard time because he's not really tuned into the body the way that the owner of the body is. Um, so anyway, just a little, you know, minutiae commentary there on that. But anyway, to address, uh, to answer that, yeah, that's, that's absolutely a thing, Michael. And, uh, and yes, in the uh, silliness of the livingness of beingness, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
Syoc. Hi again, Chris. Thanks again for answering my last question about Dynamics 55. I thought you made these up for comedic effect, but there's actually real Scientology books called Scientology 0 to 8, The Book of Basics, Scientology 880, The Discovery and Increase of Life Energy in the Genus Homo Sapiens, Scientology 8808, No Subtitle, Official Description, The Complete Description of the Behavior and Potentials of a Thetan, what on God's green earth could these possibly mean? Oh, yes. Let's take a look at these books. So we're going to get into um, three of Scientology's most fundamental basic texts. And uh, we'll start with Scientology 0 to 8. Now, L. Ron Hubbard had a real big thing for using the, the number 8 uh, as representative for the concept of infinity, because it's the infinity symbol turned on its side, and he made a, he was always going on about that. Dropped uh, dropped reference to that in many lectures. How you know the letter eight, the number eight is the infinity symbol, and so he would use that as a representation of infinity. So Scientology zero to eight is from nothing to infinity. Everything in between, here's all of it, right? And that in Scientology 0 to 8 is called the Book of Basics. Basically, it is a compilation book of all of the various scales and charts that Hubbard put together over the years, and codes are in there as well. In fact, I pulled it up here, and um, I'm just going to walk through a little bit of it for you. Um, it says right in the foreword of the book, Condensed into this single volume are the senior laws of the mind, spirit, and life as discovered and codified by L. Ron Hubbard through half a century of research, investigation, and development. Okay, so you can see from this language, I'm, you know, I'm always going on about this, but I love showing you guys the scriptures, so to speak, so you can get it straight from how Scientologists receive this information. It's very self-important. It's very like, oh, this is all the research of all the things Hubbard found, as though he was some scientist plowing, you know, new territory and investigating all of these, you know, hitherto unknown uh, concepts and figuring them all out. So it says right here, Scientology 0 to 8 means Scientology from 0 to infinity. The 8 being the infinity sign turned upright. As expressed in the title, this book embodies the basics of Scientology from zero to infinity, meaning ultimate truths contained in the logics, factors, and axioms, which are also in the book. So this book would basically be a condensation of all of the most fundamental information uh, in Scientology, all kind of concentrated together. Right? There's not a lot of context given. It's just here's a scale, here's a chart, here are the axioms, here's the logics. And in fact, the overview is it, it starts off with the aims of Scientology. There are some definitions and symbols, the equations, logics, and axioms of Dianetics, the cues, prelogics, and axioms of Scientology, the factors, the dynamics. These are all chapters the dynamics, scales and charts, codes and principles of conduct, the creed of the church. Right, And this is now we're up to page 409. This is a pretty thick book. There's a lot of stuff packed in here. And, um, and I'm not going to necessarily do a whole seminar in the entire book right now. I'm just giving you an overview of what this book is. Okay, so that's Scientology 0 to 8, the book of basics. Then we go to Scientology 880. Now, this one is 
Um, basically, this is 1952 material is when Scientology 880 was written. And 880 was, if I remember right, it was a process. Yes, summary. There's a technique, 880, uh, running the Phaeton. Okay, and the, and this book has a lot of theory and information, again, very condensed uh, from mostly uh, from lectures Hubbard gave, where he would break down different concepts uh, that were important to Scientology at that time. For example, there is a chapter in here about facsimiles, which are mental image pictures, which is when you close your eyes, get a picture of a cat. That concept of the cat, that picture that you get, whatever it looks like, whether it's a gray cat, orange cat, tabby, whatever, that's a mental image picture. It's also called in Scientology a facsimile because it's a copy, it's a mental copy of a physical universe image or reality. And the facsimiles that are stored in the mind, according to L. Ron Hubbard, are in three dimensions. And they contain all the perceptics, all the perceptions that the person had, not just sight, sound, touch, taste, but also gravity level, uh, density, uh, air quality. I mean, all, he's got a list of like 79 different perceptions that a Thetan is tracking with every second of every day. They are recording, making facsimiles of the universe around them. That's in a chapter here called facsimiles. There's another chapter on wavelengths. Hubbard tried through the 1952 53 era to discuss uh, thetans in terms of electronics and he tried to use electrical phenomena to explain how thetans do things like control a body with tractor beams and presser beams pushing and pulling like a puppeteer uh, running a body and uh, and so wavelengths have something to do now now I have shown this material I've shown this book to electrical engineers and um, and physicists. And they have laughed at it. They've laughed at how ridiculous Hubbard's understanding of this material is. So if you want a good laugh, if you want a good joke, read these books. This is not real stuff. Hubbard's understanding of electronics is simple, Simon, nonsensical bullshit. And that's what's in these books. Okay, so, uh, so the wavelength chapter talks about the wavelengths of energy connected with these mental image pictures and connected with thetans and how different emotions are carried on different wavelengths. That kind of thing. Uh, then there is some, some chapter, chapters about particular techniques that were used in Scientology around this time. They're not really used anymore. Uh, black and white, uh, black and white aesthetics, concept running, there's a, there's a chapter in here called Bodies. Let's, uh, let's run down to that and see what's in there. Um, all this black and white stuff that I'm flipping through here. Oh, my God. This is bringing back some memories. Um, bodies. Yes, you can run beauty and ugliness on parts of the body. And, you know, this was back, this book was first published back when auditing was really roll it yourself, kind of figure it out as you go. It was not anywhere near as codified. They didn't even have e-meters that they were using back in 1951-52. So, I mean, just barely getting the e-meter into operation during this time. So, it's not, it was this, this kind of auditing that Hubbard is talking about in this book is very different from the kind of auditing that they do now. 
Um, so this is really historical kind of stuff. There's um, there's a chapter in here called the dichotomies, uh, like survive, succumb, uh, communication, no communication, agree, disagree, start, stop, uh, cause, effect, you know, win, lose. These dichotomies are something that were used in auditing uh, techniques at that time. So that's basically Scientology 880, okay? And then we get to the last one you mentioned, which is 8808. And this one is the basically Scientology 8808 is the handbook for the Philadelphia doctorate course lectures. At, at the end of 1952 in December in Philadelphia, Hubbard gave a series of lectures that are famous in Scientology for their uh, complexity and difficulty to understand because, again, Hubbard's going into electrical phenomena and explaining things in very bizarre ways that take a long time for people to get their head around because he talks a lot about energy and energy flows and, again, how a thetan is running a body and how energy... Uh, both attracts and repels a thetan and how a thetan um, is uh, sort of stuck to bodies and how a thetan is drawn to things but then can't have them because the physical universe pulls it away. What, you know, kind of like Lucy with the football and Charlie Brown. He's always trying to kick it and she's always pulling it away. Hubbard says that's kind of what the physical universe is constantly doing to you as a thetan is you're reaching the physical universe pulls back and withdraws from you. That and a, a bunch of other concepts are, are are laid out in this book. Basically, 8808 is a sort of summary of the lectures of the Philadelphia Doctorate Course or the PDC lectures. And they're kind of meant to be studied, you know, the book is kind of meant to be studied with the lectures. Uh, we have chapter titles like The Beingness of Man, The Theta Mest Theory, Time, Space, Energy, and Matter, uh, Affinity, Communication, and Reality, Identity versus Individuality, Beingness, Doingness, and Havingness. You know, these are all important fundamental Scientology concepts. And when Scientologists read this stuff or listen to Hubbard lecture about this stuff, they really think they're getting the nuts and bolts of how the universe is put together and how they relate to it. There's a lot of Scientologists who just absolutely love this stuff, and they really dive in thinking that they're learning the secrets of how uh, matter, energy, space, and time, and theta interact. And therefore, this is how it really is. This is what's really going on in the world. That's what this book kind of represents. And again, it's December 1952 time period. A lot of this stuff is um, uh, not, you know, it sort of explains or undercuts um, all the rest of Scientology. So this isn't considered a book that's like old and nobody uses anymore. Not quite, not quite like 880. Nobody's really diving into 880 and like, oh my God, it's all here, you know. But 8808, people get kind of deep into. Uh, there are there's a lot of Scientologists who think Hubbard uh, very early on was was really laying out the whole foundation for the subject. What he was really doing, of course, is obfuscating the hell out of anybody's ability to understand any of this because this is all gobbledygook. This really, this stuff, when you start trying to take it apart and really make sense out of it, which I have done post-Scientology, it is 
it, it's just mind numbing uh, how how dumb this stuff is. It really doesn't make any damn sense unless you buy into so many Scientology principles that have to be true in order to make this make sense. For example, Thetans have to exist. There has to be a spiritual element to life. It can't be um, an energy field or something physical. It has to be the Hubbard's version of a spirit, which is that it doesn't exist in, the physical, in physical terms. Uh, it's its own universe. It comes from its own place. And so it's different and separate from matter, energy, space, and time. And, uh, and so many other principles that are, that are unique or somewhat unique to Scientology. So that's kind of a quick, rapid rundown on these books for you. Uh, so that's what is on God's green earth about these books. And there you go. John O. Nolan, I'd like to get your tips for effectively studying and understanding something that is difficult slash challenging. How do you go about it? What do you do when you can't quite grasp what you're reading? Do you just move on, accepting you won't understand everything? Or do you not move on until you completely understand that part? What did you learn? What were your experiences from your masters about learning something? What an interesting question. Uh, thank you for asking this, Jono. And um, basically how I study is I am uh, I do pay attention to the words that I am studying, right? When I, when I read things, I want to understand all the words of it. But I don't go like psychotic about it, like with Scientology, where I've got a pile of dictionaries sitting next to me, and I have to look up every single word or something. I can figure things out from context, just like anybody else. And I don't have a problem with that anymore. In Scientology, they have a real problem with that. Uh, you know, if you can't define the word all on its own, then you don't understand it. And I'm like, okay, well, all I'm trying to do is get the context of what's being communicated to me. Uh, often with academic papers, I struggled, and I struggled because of other concepts that were being referenced or referred to or cited. I had to go look at those. So often with heavy, you know, heady material, um, it, it involves a lot of, you know, stopping and going and looking at something else and kind of clearing that up. You know, they, they talk about uh, maybe I'm on some uh, sociology paper and they refer to some psychology principle and I've never heard of that before. So I got to go look that up. This is where Google is my friend. Wikipedia is often my friend with this when I just want a quick rundown on a thing. And then I can dive into the references on Wikipedia if I want, you know, deeper or more uh, sourced material. Um, but as far as... Um, as far as, you know, if I don't grasp something, what do I do about it? Well, I don't go on until I grasp it. I don't leave myself study. When I study, I don't leave myself a trail of confusions behind me. I do want to understand each thing as I'm going. However, there's also grading the importance of things. I don't, you know, if it's referencing some 1950 thing that isn't on the main line of what I'm reading this paper on emotions about, and it's referencing some other conditioning experiment or something, I don't need to go dive into Skinner or go into that material in order to get what's the point of this paper. And mostly when it comes to, now that I'm talking a lot here about reading academic papers where really the, you know, the, the abstract will tell you most of what you need to know and the takeaway and the conclusions. I don't have to dive into reading, you know, the, 
uh, the way they went about doing the research or the study specifics or the p-values or any of that. Unless I'm being critical of the paper, I'm diving into like, well, wait a minute, is this legit? Are these answers real? Is this a conclusion that makes sense? And I'll go dive in more deeply into the research methodology or something like that. In terms of regular literature or non-scientific papers or academic papers, uh, it's the same kind of thing. If I run into something I don't recognize or I'm not familiar with or it doesn't make sense in the context, I'll stop and Google it or look it up in a dictionary or find some article on it uh, so that I can get it cleared up and then I move on from there. And, you know, that's kind of as conscientious as I get with material, I suppose, that these days. I certainly am more than happy to look up words I don't understand in a dictionary as well if there's some big $20 word sitting in the middle of the page that this author is using and it looks important to you know, understanding the material, then I'll certainly look it up. But I don't go through every definition and make sentences and go to the derivation and all that stuff. Uh, no need to do any of that. So that's my brief rundown on it. I hope that, uh, well, it's more than brief. So I hope that gives you some idea of how I go about consuming information. And there you go. Jonathan Perry. I was watching a video about Scientology's super secret underground bunkers. Aaron was wondering, since they are meant to survive a nuclear apocalypse, how would anyone be able to enter the bunker? You've mentioned that the symbols that are outside are meant to be seen from the sky. So is it meant to be seen by people with technology that can fly over it or an ethereal OT that could just pass through a wall or armored door? All right. Thank you for this, Jonathan. Now, I suspect that, okay, the... Let me give you a little background on the, on what's in these bunkers, okay? Scientology has about four or five of these things that we know of um, where they have uh, preserved L. Ron Hubbard's words and lectures uh, on medium that will uh, survive an atomic blast or will survive a nuclear war, survive the end of civilization. But they want these materials to be found and they want them to be used. It's not just Hubbard's stuff that's in these vaults. Not only do they have, you know, big boxes and archival air sucked out of it material to preserve this information, but they also have dictionaries, encyclopedias, every book L. Ron Hubbard ever referenced anywhere Copies of all of those are in the vaults, too. And there's books on English and learning English and grammar books and dictionaries. And there's a whole slew of stuff there. So if you walk in there and you don't know English and you don't know what the hell you're looking at, you'll be able to figure it all out from the materials that are in these vaults. They expect that people who find these in the future are not going to necessarily be speaking English and are not going to necessarily know how to even understand what these materials are. So there's pictorial representations of how to do everything, right? There are solar-powered record players. Uh, there are, um, and then there's all the titanium plates that have etched in them all the words of L. Ron Hubbard and all of his books and all of his, all of his written materials. So, you know, so caveman guy walks in there or, you know, post-apocalyptic guy walks in there and doesn't know, you know, what any of this is, the pictures and the, and the materials there will teach them. Otherwise, they'd never be able to consume Hubbard's information. They wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't make any damn sense. And the whole idea of investing millions and millions and millions of dollars in this project is for it to work. 
So that all being said, they want them found. And it's not just the symbols, you know, the, the diamond symbols outside, I think, that they expect. Uh, that's kind of how you could find them. That's, that's one way you could find them. If you were flying over, it would look unique. You could see it. But they're meant to be found by people with bodies, not, not thetans. So the, the doorways and the entryways and all that have got to be accessible in some fashion or another. I don't think they're all just totally locked up. But they are on properties where they are surrounded by, you know, lots and lots of land where people can't just walk up to them. You'll never be able to just sneak onto one of those bases. They have those things guarded like crazy. Um, not, a, not a lot of people out there, but security cameras, alarms, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is that they want these things found and they want them, uh, you know, exposed to people in some post-apocalyptic future. And here's a funny thing to think about. It might just work. I mean, I don't know how many other people have vaults in the ground to preserve all of the written and spoken works of their guru. Or have them accessible and have teaching materials there so that if you stumble upon them 10,000 years from now, you could figure it out just like archaeologists right now figure out Egyptian runes and hieroglyphics. Here's the whole alphabet. I mean, the Rosetta Stone basically is in the vault. So, so that's all there. So I don't know how many other people besides Scientology are doing this. So wouldn't it be ironically, tragically bizarre if we do end all end up offing ourselves or civilization takes a nosedive and we go down to, you know, a few thousand humans for a while before we repopulate the planet or something or evolve into something else? Wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, they're digging around 10,000 years from now and they dig this stuff up and this is all that's left? <laughs> I mean, geez, wouldn't that be crazy? kind of a possibility if you think about it it's a scary one to me but uh anyway there you go pm i understand reasonably how a religious arbitration court works in the u.s but as a swede the whole thing appears as a bad and incomprehensible comedy in any case i would like to have it clarified which crimes end up in the religious arbitration court and which crimes end up in the prosecutor's office to clarify, what Valeska Paris is suing Scientology for is a serious and heinous crime. So if the courts can't take the case based on a contract she signed not to sue the church, then I wonder how it works if any of the Sea Org members were, for example, physically abused by COB David Miscavige. Can they report it to the police so a prosecutor can charge Miscavige with assault in a court of law? Or does the religious arbitration apply to this example as well? All right, so here is my layman understanding of this. You would have to ask a uh, licensed attorney if you want, you know, uh, absolutely positively correct answers on this. But here's my understanding of it is that as in a civil, there's, a, there's civil law and there's criminal law. In the United States, these are two separate things. They both happen in a court of law. They both have judges. They can have juries. They can have defense and prosecutorial attorneys. But... The laws that are in effect and are utilized in these different and the process and procedure of them are different, very different. And the results of the consequences of a win or a victory in either of these venues is different. In a criminal court, 
uh, on criminal charges, right, criminal statutes, you will go to jail. You will have your liberty taken away from you. You will be prosecuted and you will be punished. In a civil court, it's monetary fines that can be levied against a person. You are found liable. You're not found guilty. You're found liable. And the liability of that means you're going to be paying money in restitution or damages to the people who are suing you. So in one venue, you have prosecution leading to loss of liberty. And in another venue, you have prosecution leading to monetary fines. Maybe there are uh, you know, other things that can be levied against a person, but that's basically, in the majority of cases, that's what you're going to find. Now, in a criminal case, you have what are called statutes of limitations. You cannot prosecute a person for crimes committed after the statute of limitations has run out. Uh, for murder, I don't believe there is a statute of limitations, but say for burglary, it's a few years, right? Maybe 10 years. You got a window of time in which to catch the guy and prosecute him for that crime. And if you don't get it done, that's it. You can't prosecute, but you could sue. You could sue in a civil court for damages or for liability's sake. And a civil case, uh, a civil suit is where the religious arbitration comes into play. Okay, religious arbitration is not meant to be and never will be a substitute for criminal prosecution. Uh, that's not something, and those crimes are not crimes that will be mediated in arbitration. This is, for example, with uh, Danny Masterson's case right now. He is accused of raping these women, and these women have gone to uh, a federal or, a, or sorry, a uh, county level, the the uh, attorneys. Attorney General and said, we have this case, right? They went to the police, the police go to the Attorney General and the Attorney General's office says, yeah, we're going to prosecute this in a criminal case, in a criminal court of law, uh, with the end in mind of putting this man in jail. That's the criminal case. That has, that Scientology arbitration and religious arbitration can't touch that. There's nothing to do with it. At the same time, these Masterson's victims are bringing a civil suit against the Church of Scientology and against Danny Masterson for stalking and harassing them. They could go to the police and they could say, we have a case of stalking and harassing and we would like Danny Masterson or the Church of Scientology prosecuted for that. But that means the attorney in question, the the DA office, the district attorney or the attorney general, has to make a decision to do that. And in order to do that, they have to feel that they're going to win the case. And in a case, and in this case, they did not do that. And so there is not a criminal case being brought against Masterson. There's a civil case being brought against him. And that civil case will result in uh, restitution and in uh, damages paid. Again, money. Not right. The, in the civil case, there's no prison time possible. It's not even on the. It's not even on the on the boards, right? It's not even a, a, a an option. It's just money. Um, but the idea being with a civil case that there could be damages levied against the offender in such a way that it bankrupts them or ruins their life or otherwise, um, you know, really impinges on their life in such a way that they will never ever ever want to do anything like that again. Uh, so there is this sort of punitive factor with civil cases, but it's again, it's not jail time. 
that's where religious arbitration comes into play. Because the church has contracts that their members have to sign in order to do services in Scientology at all. The price of admission is you got to sign these contracts. And the contracts specifically state, if in the future you have a problem with us and what we've done, you're going to agree that we're going to resolve this in religious arbitration run by the Church of Scientology. The... um, There are other religious institutions that also do this. There are corporations that do this. They're not saying you can't prosecute them criminally. That's not where the religious arbitration comes into play. It's on the civil suit side of things that the religious arbitration is mandated. And that's what we have found with Valeska Paris's case. That's what we found with Luis Garcia's case, with... um, uh, Valerie Haney's case, with with all these civil cases that are brought against the church for monetary damages, that's where they haul out the religious arbitration clause and say, no, 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 you don't get to sue us for money, for damages. You have to go to our arbitration process, and there is where we will determine whether uh, the church owes you money or not or is liable toward you for actions committed against you. And I hope that that's as best as I can differentiate those two things. So I hope that makes uh, sense. And again, uh, if it doesn't, you know, if I'm missing something, of course, lawyers, go ahead and pipe in in the comments section. And if I am grossly in error about something, feel free to correct me about that. I I think I kind of got them pretty accurately differentiated there. But y'all let me know. Okay, and that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me prattle on here. I hope you will remember that I am available for consultation. If you need any help or assistance with a coercive control situation, cult situation, domestic situation involving coercive control, feel free to contact me. I am more than happy to help. I do not offer therapy. I am not that kind of psychologist, but I can do, um, I can give advice, I can consult, and I can uh, educate. So I uh, do that professionally. And of course, feel free to support the channel through Patreon, PayPal, Venmo, etc. Links to all of that are in the comments or in the uh, description section below. That all being said, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.